0: Welcome to Westside Unscripted, the podcast where our pastors loosen their ties, throw away their notes, and answer questions about all things theology and culture. I'm Josh Bartels, a deacon here at Westside, and I am joined uh, once again by Pastor Peter Montoro, our preaching pastor. He has been absent for the last couple weeks, uh, out on a trip down to Dallas, Texas. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, but he's brought a book with us, as, uh, as he usually does, for us to a look at? So what do, you, what do you have this week?
1: I've got a book called Eve in Exile and the Restoration of Femininity. And uh, it was recommended to me quite some time ago. And uh, as I'm preparing for this series on embodiment, I'm reading uh, books that are specifically about that, but also books that are about our identity as male and female. And uh, this was a book that I read in the preparation for that. And It's one of the ones I really liked. Um, in some ways, it's like the uh, It's Good to Be a Man book, but for women. But I actually like it better. Like, it. I think the good bits are the same, but there was less, I, I, I put it this way, there was less that gave me check about it, like just in terms of how it was presented. There were fewer things that I was like, I don't know if I want to follow you there. Like I, I found like I, it was like the good bits were similar to the good bits in the other one, but I found like less that was like, uh, you know. Yeah. Okay. So I really, that's really, cool. uh, I'm sure I could find something to disagree with in the book, but on the whole, I really liked it. Good. So I thought I'd read a couple quotes from it. Um, there's lots of good quotes in the book, but, uh, and there's a documentary that's coming out yeah, I have not seen the trailer, yeah. but the book is really good. So probably yeah, go
0: check it me. out. And it's got the author yeah. walking through these kind of issues, updated for the modern. Uh, and not not that it has to necessarily be updated, but there have been a lot of happenings since the time the book was published. Yeah, 2016.
1: So, so the past six years.
0: Yeah, which are pretty pretty massive <laughs> yeah, six know, right? years. <laughs>
1: yeah, been a lot of things have happened in the past six years. Yeah, but for some people, some people prefer uh, prefer watching things over yeah, which we'll yeah. be talking about here in a minute. Yeah, indeed. Uh, but uh, I'm I'm old-fashioned. I like to read things. When the 60s feminists were chomping at the bit to get out there and work, they were doing so because that's what God made us for. God didn't look at Adam in the garden and say, it is not good for man to be alone. He needs something pretty to look at. The 50s idealized notion of a woman who only exists to look pretty and make the house look pretty uh, is just as much a revolt against the creation order as the radical feminine agenda is. It's just a revolt against a different part. The Victorian ideal of a tender, swooning, delicate woman who's incapable of getting her lily white hands dirty is a rebellious ideal, forgetting what it was Eve uh, was, forgetting what it was Eve was created for. And so I think that's something I've been talking about. here, I talked about it and just, you know, something we need to constantly be remembering that, you know, the 50s should not be what we're looking back forward to because in many ways that was already, there was something feminism was reacting to and it was the emptying out of meaning of the household. So if we just say we want women to you know, focus on the home, but we don't also work at giving the home meaning and purpose and value, um, and even economic value, uh, then we can actually you know, end up being guilty of exactly the things that we're accused of being guilty of. And right. I think we wanna be really careful about that. And there's another quote, there's lots of good ones, but um, this goes, it's in the same chapter, I think, in, Nope, next chapter, but it goes along with that that theme. Eve was created in order to help Adam with both tasks, that is, with filling and subduing the earth. But somewhere along the line, we've gotten ourselves tangled up and have started to see those two tasks as if they were an either-or situation. You can either subdue or you can fill. You can either, quote, work or you can have babies. Different generations in recent memory have leaned towards one or the other of these, and so the teeter-totter has wobbled back and forth on what is considered culturally acceptable for women to do. But the truth is that women were created for both. God made Eve to be innately gifted for and driven to do both of those things. If you try to make women as a group do nothing difficult except have babies, they'll be wretchedly unhappy. If you try to make women as a group work like dogs but deny their roles as mothers, they'll be wretchedly unhappy. Um, And so in fact, sometimes I think we have to recognize how broken our society is and see that people who are doing things that maybe look different from what we're doing can have a, a biblical goal in mind. Right. You know, so just because a woman is working outside the home doesn't mean she's automatically out of line because there's a limited number of jobs that are available that can be done inside the home. And just because a woman is not, you know, working a job doesn't mean she's not, you know, like there's, there's like, we have to be, we have to like have the goal clearly in mind of this is what we want, but it's going to take a generation or more to get there. Right. And so... So we've gotta do the best that we can under the circumstances we find ourselves with some things clearly excluded, but with, we just need creativity and we need people to think outside the box and be a whole lot less judgy of one another. (laughs) Um, You know, when we share that common goal, like to be clear, like, you know, we need to celebrate the value of having children and celebrate the value of work and celebrate, you know, the value of the household and and find ways to make the household productive so that all these things can come together in accordance with God's creation design.
0: Yeah, so that there's not a conflict between, like she was saying, the two different roles of the the, the two different tasks Mm -hmm. of the creation mandate, the fill and subdue. And both of those things have to come into play And, and be in balance, I guess.
1: Yeah, and it can be it can look different ways. Like, you know, one 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 woman could be, you know, filling the earth by you know, canning a lot of, you know, right, canning a lot yeah. of things. And she's, she's being productive in that way. And she's saving, you know, she's growing the garden and she's saving money for her family. And she's, she's contributing to the economy of the household in a substantive way that is centered on the home. And uh, maybe someone else is gifted differently. And they're, you know, like my wife is a photographer and she's taught piano lessons. She's not doing as much of that now because we needed to, you know, focus more attention on, on the children. That was just taking up too much time. But, uh, the photography is something that's, Profitable, you know, it's something that's centered around our household and it's, you know, only takes her away for brief periods of time and yeah. has been beneficial and so that's something where I've really wanted to support her in because I think that's, it's not perfect, it's not ideal, but it's, it's worked well for our family over the years and she does well at it and it's like she needs that creative outlet to be doing something that's excellent and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I know, what does Julie do?
0: Julie does yarn. I know what uh, she does. uh, Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So she's, she is, I would like, I would say a fabric artist. She's very interested in the design and the coloring of yarn. So she does like the, the patterns that people use to, you know, make a sweater or socks or a blanket, things like that in crochet or knitting. She writes and designs those kinds of patterns. And so that's something that uh, she does. That is kind of a, an outlet of creativity and beauty. Uh, beyond just the ordinary you know tasks of motherhood that involve you know caring for the home and designing a nice home and that kind of thing, so
1: yeah I think that's really that's that's been yeah. really cool someday i want to someday I want to have enough land to uh to raise sheep for her wool <laughs> I <mean>, that' would be <laughs> so cool if we like had like you know a sheep farmer and then uh you know uh a wool and then someone who has yeah, like yeah. A, you know like a, using the handmade wool you, you, you get like you get it all organic then all of a sudden like you know, there you go you. Yeah. local wool. If you get local right. wool, yeah, yeah. then you can charge twice as much.
0: <laughs> Perfect. You know, it's a good setup. So you get the, you get the, the sheep farm going, and
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. I that may not be realistic with the gifts and calling that God's given me. Uh, but you know, I've
0: I you never know. About it. Yeah. Well, so speaking of the gifts and callings that God has given you, uh, this last week you that was a smooth went segue, to Josh. thank you. Yeah, <laughs> this last week you it went to. The planet. I know it just happens. We went to Dallas, Texas. Uh, you, I was just there for a day, but then you stayed on and delivered a paper at an academic conference. Now, you mentioned this last Sunday that that's what you did. But to people, for people like me who have never been to an academic conference and very possibly never will uh, and who don't understand the idea of giving a paper, is that like serving papers? What does it mean to give a paper at an academic conference? What did you do this last week?
1: So I want to talk about what we did together as well, but I guess I'll start we, with the paper. Yeah, let's, we'll get Yeah, so that. let's start with the paper. So what it means to give a paper at an academic conference is, you know, you'll go and there's not a lot of, you know, it's it's not like you're speaking to this giant crowd. Like there weren't a lot of
0: people, you know, even... Right, it's a very specialized It's group a very specialized
1: people. audience yeah. and... Um, you know, lots of people will even you know, go and <laughs> I've been guilty of this. You know, we'll go to the conference and they'll end up talking to people and, and skip the papers uh, sometimes, too. Uh, but, you know, w- typically in your field, like, you know, academic fields tend to be really specialized. And so there tend to be just a really small handful of people who really matter for any given particular uh, field. Um, not that they're the only people who have value in God's eyes are the only people that you're you're kind to, but in terms of right. making decisions you know that would affect your your research project and so when you go, you give a paper, um, typically you send in an app ab- what's called an abstract ahead of time, and so you'll write like a hundred or 200 word summary of this is what I'm going to give a paper on um, and you'll usually have to send that in um, a few months sometimes several months ahead of time um, And then they'll evaluate the abstracts and they'll pick the papers that will actually be delivered. Um, So some are more competitive than others. This was a first for me because I was actually invited to – so lots of times it's like an open invitation. So you have lots of people submit. But I got like a, you know, we would like you to submit, which isn't that big a deal. But it was the first time I had something like that. So it's sort of like a step in the right direction. Yeah, that's cool. Not a keynote speaker, but being, you know, asked to submit a paper. Uh, So I sent in a few months back. I sent in my abstract for the paper, actually several months ago, but then you actually have to write the paper when the time comes. So you, you know you don't write the paper until you've you know got that you'll be able to give it. Uh, and so then you know things, this actually happened to me. I, I have talked to some of you all about this. like <laughs> I went to write the paper and I had this I was working on a tight deadline because I was waiting on some information uh, from someone, and, and I couldn't start till I got it. and so when I got this data set and I was ready to go, and it just wasn't coming together and I was panicking. and eventually it all it all sorted out and so it was a 35 minute session and I saved several minutes for questions um, and so you write the paper and you read it so, you know similarly to uh, in fact one of the people actually commented that I was preaching up there um, <laughs> you know just I can't can't get out of that mode uh, deliver with passion and stuff so you write a paper and you give it um, and um, you know whatever you happen to happen to be doing and in this case I was a particular topic I was pushing in on I won't get into all the technical details but you know, how should we think of these manuscripts of Chrysostom and, and these these commentary manuscripts in, and what evidence do we have for how they were seen and how did they, really, how did these these sorts of, so, uh, you know, as lots of you know, I've talked about this, I'm working on Chrysostom's homilies on Romans, Sermons on Romans, um, and I'm, you know, basically the paper essentially was on how these manuscripts of these commentaries are interacting with manuscripts of the New Testament. And so if we want to understand the whole picture of New, the New Testament, we actually have to look at the different things that are influencing the scribes um, because this is part of the environment. In fact, sometimes these commentary manuscripts, as it is today, you know, like study Bibles are used, you know, not just as a commentary, but as a Bible. Um, right. And so then that, you know, affects sort of the overall environment of, of things being copied in, and, and that was the case in the ancient, you know, ancient world as well. That was basically what my paper was on.
0: So yeah. So this is what it looks like to be involved in academic work is just getting your work out in front of other scholars who can then take that and factor that into their work that they're doing. Exactly. And then in fact,
1: in fact, there's a big, big project going on right now for this, you know, that's this most comprehensive edition of the New Testament ever been published, just in terms of presenting lots and lots of evidence from lots and lots of manuscripts. And a lot of my work is Uh, working on one particular slice of that evidence and how we should be using it. And so I'm trying to persuade other scholars um, that they should use this evidence differently (laughs) if they want to use it accurately. And so the one scholar who's, apart from my own supervisor, um, who reads my papers and all of that, you know, cause he's my, my supervisor. But the one person that I need to persuade more than anyone else was there and gave a good question. And I had, <laughs> it was a question I was able to answer. Uh, so that was kind of like, that's where, you know, you go for those interactions, face-to-face yeah. interactions. I was able to to talk to him and, and, you know, and that's why you go to a conference cause he lives in uh, Germany. <laughs> and so being able to, you know, meet together, you know, so right. there were people there from the UK, yeah. there were people there from Germany, from all over the United States. Um, so it's a small group of people, but it's from a lot of different places. And so you're able to, you know, interact and-
0: Yeah, you know. that's cool. So then to move it to the more popular level, before the conference, we recorded a podcast, a, a new podcast, this isn't one of the uh, West Side Unscripted episodes, this is gonna be a brand new thing. Uh, we recorded this th- to address kind of where that those textual matters the scholarly matters mm-hmm. intersect then with the life of exactly. layman and this is targeting not the scholar but the people who are involved in the whether they're pastors or just laymen in the pew who are sitting under their pastors to deal with with their response to textual scholarship uh, as a whole and so maybe just to set up, it's a podcast recorded by the Textual Confidence Collective. So maybe you could start by describing what is the Textual Confidence Collective? Who who are the Textual yes, Confidence Collective? The Textual Collective.
1: Confidence Collective is four 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 men. Um, well, actually, there's five of us because Josh came and he was the cameraman, and he used the gifts and skills that God's given him uh, to record us, and uh, he'll be involved in the editing process, and we are just really, really grateful for his gifts because none of us... Uh, has uh, the gifts that he has to the degree that he has them. Uh, I certainly don't have them at all. Uh, so I would have been quite helpless in, in terms of how to, you know, record and mix sound and you know, get camera angles, get multiple cameras set up and <laughs> the funky way you had the table set up so that it would look good on camera, all that stuff. That was just like, I was just blown away. And one of the other guys had some knowledge of that too. And they were going back and forth. And I was just like, I am... I'm out of my depth on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So yeah, so we had uh, Josh, so it's four of us who are in on the the videos. We'll have a series of YouTube videos um, and then a podcast as well. And so it's myself and Mark Ward, uh, who wrote the little book Authorized, uh, The Use and Abuse of the King James Version, and a friend of ours called Tim Berg that Josh and I went to Bible college with, uh, and then another uh, friend of ours... uh, uh, well, I don't think you know. Do, I don't think I did not know you did know him before this, we yep. we met, but uh, his name is Elijah Hickson, and uh, he uh, is a textual scholar. So, kind of Mark and Tim's emphasis is on translation, and my and Elijah's emphasis is on, you know, manuscripts and texts. So, we had, and I'm a pastor. So, you know, we had, uh, and uh, let's see, all of us have been involved, heavily involved in church ministry. Um, yeah. Elijah's an associate pastor. So,
0: now. you all met how long ago? Yeah. When was the oh, first yeah. meeting? So this is, like... a, as I hear, it, as I understood it, this is in one sense a podcast that's been in the making for several years. Yeah,
1: we met at the the uh, ETS, which is Evangelical Theological Society. We all went out to eat. I think it was in Ro- I think it was in Providence, Rhode Island. So it's three, four years ago, and we've been talking about writing a book, like a long book together. Um, but we're just all super busy, and that just wasn't happening. We weren't making progress towards writing this book. So we've met. Um, so, I mean, we've had a, a group, a message group that's been going on, just thousands of messages back and forth over the years, you know, talking about it. Um, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And, and finally, we're like, you know, we can't do a book right now, but we could meet together at a conference and record a series of podcasts and videos. Um, and actually... You know, even though I do almost anything to avoid watching videos and read everything, that's actually not probably normal. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. so you know, for normal, you know, trying to, to reach out to normal people, um, it might be more effective to have videos and podcasts. Yeah. Um, and so... So
0: then describe what exactly this podcast is responding to.
1: So what we're responding to is really we're trying to respond to the fear that if you take manuscript evidence seriously, you won't be able to trust the scriptures anymore. And, and how this fear manifests is you have, you know, we sort of set it up. We have, you have textual skeptics that are, you know, someone like a barterman or an agnostic that, you know, says, oh, there's all these textual variants. You can't trust the Bible. And someone, you know, comes along and says, well, I want to trust the Bible. So I, I you know, Textual, very, you know, different, you know, the fact that manuscripts differ at places must be bad for faith, you know, because look at the skeptic over here, they're saying it undermines faith. And so, you know, I'm going to say exactly the opposite, right? So if they say there's textual differences, then I'm going to say the text has to be, you know, you know, exactly perfect in order to be trusted. Um, And uh, what we want to say is what what ends up happening is you end up accepting the presuppositions of skeptics and you, you, you think you're being the opposite of them. But in some ways, and this is, this is so, so much of, of even people, even some of the ways that I was brought up or, or, you know, influences that Josh and I both had, you know, when you say that in order to trust God, I have to have a God's eye view, <laughs> then that's basically what a, tech, what a skeptic is saying. I have to have a God's eye view in order to know anything at all about God. Right. I don't, so therefore I know nothing. Uh, and, and then someone with a, an absolutist view is going to come, and they're going to say, well, I have to have this God's eye perfect access to God's word to have God's word at all, um, and so I know I have God's word. So therefore, you know, fooing <laughs> on the manuscript evidence, um, there's no ambiguity I have. You know, and it could be that saying, you know, the King James is the perfect translation, and all of the translations are, you know, suspect or even the work of the devil. It could be the textus Receptus, which is, that's a little bit of a, a fuzzy term, but it's, you know, typically the text the King James is translated from, that's the pure text, um, and everything else has been corrupted. And, and actually what we want to say is, is actually God's word has not been corrupted, right? It's not just that this one group of manuscripts is perfect and all others are corrupt in the work of the devil. You know, actually, you know, a sleepy scribe or a drunk scribe can't destroy God's word, and they haven't destroyed God's word. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the fact that we may have some uncertainty at one, you know, at this or that place doesn't do away with the authority of scripture. So God's word is not uncertain because I'm uncertain at what God's word says at some particular point. And we see that with interpretation. Like there are lots of passages where I'm just, we're just not sure no matter what translation you use, you know, if you think you can answer every Bible question, you have a much bigger problem (laughs) than Bible translation. Right. And The same is true of the text, and I, you know I'd say what I, you know the good news that I want to give to people is actually <laughs> when we look at all the evidence, the more evidence we have, um, we can't answer every question, but we can answer a lot of them and, and more evidence and, and a careful better use of the evidence leads to more certainty, um, not to more uncertainty. Right. so we shouldn't be living in fear, we shouldn't be living in anger, we shouldn't be slandering our brothers and sisters in Christ who use other good translations. Um, we, you know we shouldn't instead you know, have a posture of, of, uh, of toil and trust. I like to say toil and trust, where those that are called to do it, you know, do do the work of textual scholarship. You know, like going to conferences and giving papers, like comparing manuscripts, like, you know, producing better. You know, not not making a bad text good, but making a good text better, being as precise as possible. It's not like two different pictures of Jesus. Um, <laughs> it's like. It's because Jesus and His Word are so precious that we care about every last pixel, um, and that's really what the work of textual scholarship is about. There's not, you know, a Bible that gives this portrait of Jesus and a Bible that gives that portrait of Jesus. Really, um, you know, even if you were to take the very worst manuscript taken as a whole um, and were to read the whole thing, uh, now if you if you took the very worst reading <laughs> out of out of every manuscript to put that together, uh, you know, scribes have a tendency to like drop chunks of text. Uh, and so (laughs) you would find that there's pretty much everything has been dropped by some scribe somewhere, which is why you compare, you know, compare manuscripts, um, and find that actually there's there's a vast degree of cohesion and coherence and and we should have this, this sort of confidence in the text. Yeah.
0: So the the two positions, the textual absolutists and then the skeptics, they both have the same underlying view of how we ha- how we are supposed to look back at the texts that we've had mm-hmm. from the beginning you know from the time that Matthew or P- Paul are penning mm-hmm. words to the page that the the reliability of those being known to us today they're all saying if we don't know exactly what they said then the whole thing is corrupt exactly. and that it's impossible for us to go backwards right it's just that the skeptic then is willing to take that information about the te- transmission of the text and say, oh, well, we can't trust it. On the other hand, you've got Christians who want to be earnest, committed followers of Jesus who hear that kind of thing. And so what ends up happening is we end up uh, maybe not intentionally being deceptive, but we start making up a story about the transmission of the text that's not true. Exactly. Whether that is saying, hey, God dropped the King James you know, from the sky on golden tablets, or whether... There actually are people
1: who believe that. Now, most, most people who would be King James-onlyists wouldn't, but there are some people who actually believe exactly that. No, I'm not slandering them. There are some. Right. I've met them.
0: <laughs> and I think that the people that I grew up with were people who accepted a certain degree of that story, but know that, like, that's ludicrous. And so they tried to be more and more faithful in terms of, okay, what do we actually have? And then they would say... Okay, so it must be the text of the King James that the King James translators had right. access to, and then there's constant. There's a whole spectrum of people right. who are making up different stories, and they're just taking different facts into account. But it, there was always in my growing up, I had the fear that if I accepted the whole story of the truth of the manuscripts, that I would inevitably become the skeptic. But what this podcast and what what is I think is so powerful about what you all talked about throughout the week is that it says, no, we can actually look at all of the evidence that comes in with open eyes, unafraid, and not be, our position isn't so fragile that looking at a new piece of evidence is just going to shatter the Christian faith. Exactly. And so we can have confidence that we have the Bible, even if what that means is we have to go back and figure out what was going on with this particular difference between this text and that one.
1: Exactly. And and even just one of the things we focused on is if you look at the story, the idea that there would be ambiguity or manuscript differences, this is something that Christians have always been aware of. So a story gets told that we had this absolute certainty of every word of the text, and then you know along came these evil scholars, you know Westcott and Hort or whoever you know gets you know pinged as the culprit in the eighteen hundreds, and you know sort of spoiled the Garden of Eden. But that's one of the things we talked about. The fall took place back in the real Garden of Eden, um, right. <laughs> And so there's always been human finitude. And and people have been aware of this, um, and uh, you know. So after we did our, uh, so one of the other papers, um, this I, w- I wish I'd heard this paper before we did our podcast. Uh, but uh, Peter Gurry, who's another friend of ours, um, friend of well, friend, of, another friend of mine. Um, he gave a paper on textual criticism in early English Bibles and showed how you know there were in the King James there are. We talked a little bit about the stuff in the King James, but you know, First John five seven is one of the big scary textual variants that gets talked about. Uh, but Tyndale was already putting it in brackets. He's the first English Bible translator. Um, and then there's a uh, an English Bible that came after Tyndale before the King James that has a note that says, you know, Erasmus is pretty sure this this isn't, uh, you know, so so the idea that even there should be, you know, notes for English Bible readers, you know, so the sort of things that, you know, get said about, like, the ESV or some other translation like that. Like, it says something about manuscripts, and you just can't, you know, it's, it's casting doubt on God's word actually you know you find notes like that just being honest about the evidence for those places where there is ambiguity or you know um, you find notes like that in Greek manuscripts and you find notes in early English Bibles is yeah. not this shocking new development um, because we don't have to know everything to know something right absolutely that's that's really <laughs> that's really what it comes down to and and one of the something that we do know is we should not, value our certainty so much that we're willing to slander other people to get it. Yep. Um, or we're willing to set people up to have a fragile faith. Like if we say, if we make this claim, like you can be, you, you know, I know everything with perfect certainty and someone can demonstrate, and, and, and every, you know, if you can prove I'm wrong on any point, then I'm wrong on everything. Yeah. If you set people up to have that kind of faith, well, guess what? You're not God and you're wrong about something. Yep. And you're gonna set people's faith up to fail. And we wanna say, no, I could, I could be wrong about lots of things um, and still get the main thing, namely Jesus and his resurrection. Right. Yeah. And that's what you need to cling to. Um, not that, to-
0: exactly as a personal testimony, I think growing up in an environment that had, uh, kind of elevated the, our particular read of the text as being, you know, the golden tablets we didn't, we definitely didn't say it that way, but, uh, I always was had a little bit of fear that you know the the next thing I would learn could cause real problems, and I was always taught then that actually looking to the man you know looking to the manuscripts or trying to get involved in the different textual decisions that are made in preserving a particular text or in translating a word a certain way uh, that the more I get into that kind of thing the more shaky my faith is going to be the more, less confidence I'm going to have in the scriptures. But my experience of it has actually been the opposite, that the more I understand and the more that people teach me about uh, how we have the text of the Bible, my confidence is so much more uh, stable now. Because if someone came to me and said now, hey, do you realize that this word doesn't mean that? Well, on one hand, I'd be like, oh, okay, well, let's actually look at that and see if that's true. But on the other hand, i am it's not it doesn't stand to knock down as much as it used to. <laughs> like, yeah. And, like, and you so know, when you
1: have like an earthquake proof house, you know, you've got redundancy to the degree that like, I don't, I'm not an architect, so I'm probably missing something out, but like, you know, this, uh,
0: yeah, you're not, you're not going to, if one thing goes, it's not the end of the world because my house is built on a different structure. And I think that's what happened as a, as a kid, whether it, this certainly, I don't know if this is what, it's not a house of cards. You take right. one card down the whole thing, you know,
1: falls down. But if you're building, you know, a Lego castle or whatever, and you've got like interlocking foundations, right? You can, you can, you can lose a brick from the wall or replace it with a better brick. You can say, Oh, that bricks the wrong color. Let me swap it out for one with a better color. You can have that sort of incremental improvement without the whole thing falling down and starting over. Yeah.
0: It's really back to like the wise man built his house on the rock. The foolish man built his house on the sand. And, uh, what I realized was that I was doing way more building on the sand. I had a rock that I could be building on every, everything building on Jesus Christ and him crucified and buried and risen again. Like I could be building my life on that, but instead I had been building it on so many peripheral things that, uh, it, it was like I had taken the shingles and decided to use that as uh, studs in the well. It's, it's kind of like you know
1: your life really was built on the rock, but it was kind of like you'd imported a bunch of sand to put over top of the rock.
0: Right. I had a lot of things spanning out way beyond the oh, uh, yeah, yeah, beyond that too, that'd the be rock, yeah, right. beyond the rock, so, yeah, beyond the rock. I'm going to build this addition yeah. <laughs> to our house, but never mind expanding any foundation for that. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, just gonna, like that. Yeah, yeah, going to build the addition.
0: Yeah, it's it's. You know, but it'll then be you okay. interlock
1: the addition in with the you know exactly. You interlock it with what's built on the rock enough. You can end up pulling people off the rock altogether yeah that's a real danger
0: yeah exactly and
1: that's that's what we're trying to help people avoid and really you know really help the next generation of pastors to really seriously consider and that's really you know who we're addressing i'd say more than anyone is the people you know our age josh and i's age we're all similarly you know a few years a few years apart but all of, all the, the four of us who did it and josh we're, we're all, you know all in our 30s and you know a lot of people our age who are ministry we went to bible college with or are, are now becoming pastors, and we want them to really take a close look at what they're going to be teaching their people yeah. um, and what they're going to be setting up the next the generation coming up. Um, and we really want, want want to see some healthier healthier teaching going on yeah. so that we have less expansions built on sand and, and more built on the rock.
0: Absolutely. So this podcast is put out by the Textual Confidence Collective. It does not have a final title yet. We're still working on what the... Uh, what the publication title is going to be, but it's a se- series of seven episodes and it'll air, of course, we'll pass on the information oh, when yeah, that time absolutely. comes. So it'll but, be about uh,
1: seven. Yeah. Some of the episodes were a little over an hour. So
0: yeah, it'll probably be right around seven hours total yep. worth of,
1: uh, yeah. Cause the last
0: information. In order, so. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it'll, gotta,
1: so it'll pray for us. We've got a lot of work to do.
0: Mm-hmm. There's now there's seven hours worth of uh podcast to get finished and put online so yeah be watching for that coming mid-july correct second week in july ish is that what you're saying
1: that's what i'm hoping for okay
0: that's what we're that's <laughs> what we're shooting for god, god, god willing <laughs> i will lord willing <laughs> i will have the seven hours of podcast ready to go by then uh, god willing so well this has been another episode of west side unscripted and as usual it has been very unscripted and we haven't even got to any kind of questions so if you have questions about the bible theology culture anything like that that's relevant uh, feel free to send those on. We'd love to add to our queue. We're kind of, the, the queue is getting smaller. So we need more questions from you. Uh, you can send those in to me at josh at com, or uh, catch me at church and uh, give me a question there. So thank you so much for listening. And God willing, we will be back with you next week for more West Side Unscripted.